I've been reading a book during my devotional time entitled Following the Call, and it's a year-long focus on the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. And the editor who put the book together has writings from many contemporary and uh, authors from church history all focused on various portions of the Sermon on the Mount. This past week, I was reading a segment of the book written by William Barclay. Many of you who have done Bible study or who have taught Bible studies recognize the name of William Barclay. He's the author of many books, but especially familiar with the Daily Study Bible, on, uh, which is a series of commentaries on the New Testament. And in his entry, focusing particularly on Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And Barclay talked about how we often fill ourselves with other things that are not helpful in our walk with God or in our lives for that matter that we satisfy ourselves on things that don't matter. And he writes that this passage calls us to a life that is filled with the things that matter most. And as you heard Pastor Philip read in our memory verse from Philippians chapter 1, where God, uh, Paul is praying that God would help the Philippians discern what is best, what is best, that their lives may be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. But how often do I settle for halfway or second for settle for second best when I should be focusing on the things that really are best or that matter most? He writes, the problem with all of this is that there are many barriers to us becoming what he describes as fully Christian. That we don't desire the good things of God enough. And y'all, I want all of Jesus. I don't want just half Jesus. I want all of Jesus. I don't, I often would rather just have the, the nice, kind, loving Jesus but there is also the Jesus that turned over the tables in the temple because of the injustices that were occurring then. And so I ask God to help me to please receive all of Jesus as I seek to be fully Christian. And what is that? Fully Christian. Because we know there's not such a thing as being half saved, partially Christian. And he writes that being fully Christian is a lifetime of seeking justice and righteousness and to be sanctified, made in the image of God over a period of time, and to seek to be glorified in heaven with God and Jesus when we are called home. God does God's part, but we must do ours too. The work of being in Christ. Pastor Jim and I were talking about 
God's work in the past, our redemption, that we become Christians, that we are redeemed from our past and given new life in Christ Jesus, and that presently we are being sanctified, that we are being made more and more like Jesus as we worship and as we follow him and focus on the spiritual practices of prayer and scripture reading and study and serving and discerning. And then the future work of glorification. But we must join God in doing our part today. How good Baptists are often more focused on becoming Christian, but we should also be focused on being Christian. And being fully Christian is a lifelong journey. And God, I pray that I, that we would be lifelong learners as we seek to be made more and more like Jesus, becoming over a lifetime of serving fully Christian. Perhaps this is what Paul is getting after in verse 12 of chapter 2 as we read together. Listen to verse 12, and we'll work our way through the rest of the chapter. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, writing to the Philippian church, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's that phrase. Continue to work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. But Paul is saying there's work that we must do as well. And this isn't a works righteousness. This isn't a, a, a statement that says that we are to somehow earn our salvation. But that salvation is that which comes only from God through our faith by his grace. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is not by works, lest no man should boast, that we are inclined to boast about the things that we do that are good, and salvation doesn't come that way. It is a free gift from God. So that we are to join God in working out our salvation. I use the illustration of, of weightlifting. Perhaps it's something like that, that we are to do our part to become more and more like Jesus. This past Christmas, our daughter Isabella got me to join her in the weight room. And there are a lot of gyms and what, whatnot. And we were visiting down in South Carolina with our family in Columbia and then in Charleston. And so we got guest passes to Crunch Fitness. And I, if you've never been to Crunch, uh, that's a gym. I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? So we go to Crunch Fitness, and I start, hey, this is kind of cool, and worked out, and then um, got back to Midlothian home after the holidays, and I said, okay, Isabella, she wanted me to to come and work out with her, so I got my membership to the Y, and now we are going, as some of you read in my recent pastor's letter, every morning at 5.30 before work and school, we're, we're going to the gym together. 
working out and learning all kinds of things and also learning that I have muscles that I haven't used in 30 years. Let me show you one of the exercises. So I'm going to walk over here, all right? I didn't know if I could do this in the 11 o'clock service, but Philip said, Pastor Bob, you need to give it a try. So there's, there's an exercise that Isabella has taught me called Bulgarian squats. Are there any, anybody in the choir? Have you done those? I don't see anybody else but me and Isabella in the whole room. All right. So you, you get some dumbbells, and then you, you take one of your feet and you put it on a bench behind you like, like this. All right. And then you take the, the dumbbells and then you, you squat down like this. And you can hear my knee cracking as I come up like that. And you, you do that like 10 times for three sets. <laughs> and, and then you switch legs and, and do it all over again. All right. So I'm going to have the other half of the congregation can't see. So let me. Let me try that for you all over here because you need to do this right when you get home, right? So you put one leg over here and then you get your weight and then you, you go down like this and then you go back up. And this, this is just one of the exercises that I have learned. I'm doing bench presses and squats, other kinds of squats and other things and I, I'm actually feeling much better and enjoying our time together. But I, I believe that working out our salvation strengthens our faith muscles. They are the, the, the spiritual practices that we engage in over the course of the Christian life that help us to grow in our faith, to grow in our salvation, to be more fully Christian. As I said, it's a lifelong journey. We will never fully get there until we are glorified in heaven. Amen. But we have work to do as we join God in what God is already doing. So some of it is much more challenging than others. But God has called us to join him in our salvation story. And we are to, to do that with fear and trembling, Paul says in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. There's those words that we read in chapter 1. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So with fear and trembling, I believe that the, the word fear can be translated as reverence and trembling as uh, being in awe of God. And, and I, I believe that it's like Moses was on the mountain when he met God and God spoke to him through an angel at the burning bush. And there were other times that, that God uh, spoke to Moses. And Moses responded in fear and trembling, uh, a sense of reverence, worship, and awe of God. And uh, Paul is desiring that the Philippian Christians present themselves in that way. And, and they aren't to grumble and argue. There was division in the church. We'll read about it a little later on as well. That there was division, and he was writing them to stop that nonsense and to have an attitude of reverence and worship, fear and trembling. 
And then in verse 16, he, he says to them, you are uh, to shine, verse 15, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Echoing Jesus' words, you are the light of the world, he said in Matthew 5.14. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And Paul desires that the Philippians shine among all of the people and that they would be able to see something different as it is when you go out into the night sky, especially during the winter, and look up and see the stars shining brightly, lighting up the, the evening for you. And do all of this as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then Paul says, and I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, that my work was not in vain. And church, isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be able to look back and to see that our labor was not in vain, that we can see fruit of what God has done? And I imagine those who have gone before us would look around and see all of the ministries and see the um, way our campus has grown and to see the peop way people have grown and, and be well pleased, that their labor was not in vain. And then Paul says this. That's why I felt like we really needed to go back and read these verses. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, you might say, what's that, Pastor Bob? What's a drink offering? In Hebrew worship and in pagan, some pagan worship cults, there would be wine or some drink poured over the offering before and after. They, it's a, it's a, called a libation in other translations. But it's this idea of, complete, of being completely emptied. Paul is picking up on this for those listening from a Hebrew background, a Jewish background, and also those who may have been from a pagan background. And he said, I am being poured out like a drink offering over the sacrifices and the service coming from your faith. And uh, he's saying, it's all worth it. Every bit of it has been worth it. He is right now writing and he's chained to a Roman guard in pri house prison in Rome, probably a decade or so after he first visited Philippi. He is suffering greatly. And he's saying it is all worth it because of your life and ministry and sacrifice that comes from your faith in Jesus Christ. And I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you should rejoice and be glad with me. Have you ever, have you ever poured yourself out for something? Think about it. You just laid it all out on the line. I think of caregivers. And there are many of you in this room who know what it means to be a caregiver. You've been there. Caregiving is where you, you out of sacrificial love, pour yourself out for your loved one. You are willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that they are comfortable and have all their needs met. 
sometimes we have to make decisions because at home we can no longer care for them as the best we can by risk of them falling or something worse happening. And so we care give and then we do that in a nursing home. And we do everything we can to advocate for our loved one. Just pouring yourself out, emptying yourself, exhausted, but so thankful and having no regrets. I think of athletes who lay it all on the line. I don't know, I think it was in the World Series when the Washington Nationals won the World Series. And Max Scherzer, there was a game where Max Scherzer, the Nationals pitcher, was completely spent. I mean, he had no, they call it no gas left in the tank. He said, I was gassed. But he stayed in there and did everything that he could so that his team could win. It's when we are totally and completely spent. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Paul writes in earlier in chapter 2 that he became nothing. He emptied himself, became nothing, and willingly died on the cross on our behalf. And then the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all use language that Jesus' blood was poured out for our sins. It's a different Greek word than Paul uses here, but it's the same concept being poured out. And Paul is saying, even if I am poured out like a drink offering on your sacrifices, Philippians, the things that you have done and the way you have served in the name of Jesus because of your faith is all worth it. And I rejoice and I hope you'll rejoice with me. This is the context as we read of these two individuals who came alongside the Apostle Paul as they served, Timothy and Epaphroditus. They emulated the kind of servant leadership that Paul taught them. Timothy, verse 19, Paul's writing, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Timothy is with him. Timothy co-authored six of Paul's letters. He was instrumental in the sharing of the gospel and the starting of churches and the equipping of the saints. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive good news about you. Verse 20, I have no one else like him. There's no one else like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out of their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that there are some other leaders that Paul has had along with him that didn't have the kind of commitment that Timothy had. Not speaking about the church, but rather people who served with him in a smaller circle. In verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. What a, what a wonderful image that is of the way that Paul and Timothy work together, that he saw Timothy as a son in the faith. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself 
will come soon. Timothy, as you remember, became part of the Apostle Paul's ministry in the second missionary journey. Some scholars believe that he heard the gospel as Paul was on his first missionary journey and then ended up joining Paul in the second missionary journey and then went to Philippi with him as the church was started there. And Paul mentored Timothy and helped him to grow into the believer that he was. So I want to ask us the question today. Think about, think about who has mentored you. Can you think of someone in your faith story who has mentored you? Was it a pastor, a youth pastor? Was it a, your choir leader when you were in a youth choir? A Bible study teacher? A chaperone that just poured themselves into the youth ministry when you were younger? I can think of several in my life. And I wouldn't be the same person I am today had it not been for those who poured themselves into me. And God is calling us as a church to pour ourselves into the next generation. I am hopeful that part of our visioning will lead us to be a church where we are pouring ourselves into the next generation and that we are laying it all out on the table doing whatever it takes to raise up the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. Paul did that to Timothy. And Timothy certainly did that to others. We have benefited from it. And my question is, who needs you to lean into their life as we go forward together as a church? What is God calling you to do to help the next generation of Christians to live a life of service and sacrifice? And then we look at Epaphroditus, verses 25 through 30. This is the only place in the New Testament where we find the story of Epaphroditus. Timothy appears in a lot of places, but only Philippians includes Epaphroditus. Verse 25 and following. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. So they had, they had sent him to Paul with gifts, offerings, but also to care for Paul's needs while he was in prison. I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety meaning I may have less worry about you all back in Philippi as a church. By the way, a little tangent here. Did Paul say that I will have no anxiety? What's it say? That I may have less anxiety, less worry. 
We all have some worry and anxiety. It's normal. And sometimes it gets chronic and we need to get some help and have some counseling to help us to be able to process it and have some good tools in the toolbox so that we can deal with anxiety when it comes up. But if the Apostle Paul says that I can have less anxiety or less worry, means that he still had some. Wow, that's a good word for us. He's a normal person like me. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Not everybody could be with Paul. In fact, very few. And so the church set Epaphroditus on mission to be with Paul in his time of need to care for him while he was chained to a Roman guard. Do you hear all of the ways that the Apostle Paul spoke highly of Epaphroditus? There was a chance that the people back at Philippi could have thought Paul was sending him back because he failed. He did something wrong. He was not worthy. And none of that. Paul made certain that this letter to them highly regarded Epaphroditus and that they knew that he was being sent back to care for them and that Paul was gracious and gracious and appreciative that they had sent Epaphroditus to him in the first place. And then the last part of verse 30 tells how Epaphroditus risked his life, nearly died to help Paul in the ways that the Philippians could never have done from afar. The word translated risk is from a Greek word that means to gamble with dice, rolling the dice, taking a chance. Paul's using a pagan word to vividly express the way that Epaphroditus laid it all out on the line for the Apostle Paul. Church, what risks are we willing to take for our future? Sometimes we think too small. Sometimes I think too small. What risks are we willing to take for the future of this community, Northwest Chesterfield, our county, our city of Richmond, and beyond? What risks are we willing to take? Are we willing to put it all on the table and say, okay, God, show us the way. Help us be faithful as you are faithful. Let me tell you a story about how God honors risk-taking. And it's happened right here at Huguenot Road. About four years ago, we worked together with our stewardship team, and Richard Martin was very involved in this. He's sitting in the room to launch the Huguenot Road Baptist Church Endowment. The church had had a fund before in the past, but had never launched a, a full-blown endowment for the future. And this would be something that would help the next generation and the generation after that 
with ministry needs and other things that came up that they might not be able to afford. And we didn't have the money to start the endowment, so we pulled some from this reserve and a little from that, and our initial investment was slightly over $100,000 to launch the endowment. And undesignated memorial gifts go to the endowment. Many of you know, uh, many of you have contributed to it, and others who have passed away have invited their friends and family to give to the HRBC endowment in their last will and testament. And I am thankful to say that just not even four years later that the Huguenot Road Endowment is nearly $900,000. Now, that's not money that we can dip into and just, you know, to supplement the budget. It's not designed for that. This is designed, once it hits a certain point, to begin receiving grant applications. And that funding can be used for various kinds of ministries in our church, missions, could be capital improvements, it could be a mission trip, it could be something we haven't even thought of yet. But all that language is built into the structure of the endowment. And you might say, Pastor Bob, that's kind of a, 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 a hidden secret. And, well, not many maybe know about the power of an endowment. And I pray that that's something that you might consider in your um, estate planning and thinking of the future. I got a call from one of our members, family members. I think it was not quite two years ago. And they said that one of our members who was non-assuming and never would have thought that they would have the means to give something like that, left us money that doubled the endowment. It's amazing what God is doing. And I pray that God would continue to help us be faithful in stewarding that so the next generation and the generation after that has some help to carry out the ministries God is calling us to at Huguenot Road Baptist Church. Thanks be to God. What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to put all out on the table? our future. We can count on Christ to guide us. Can Christ count on us to do our part? Let's pray that he can. Let us bow our heads.